Coming up in this podcast, ASEONA pullout, COVID impact including Crown and international students, Bankwest restructure, profit results and the state government's commercial deals. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. First up, Mark, uh, ASEONA has claimed force majeure over its contract to build a waste to energy plant. This is a very significant legal development and has implications, I think, for many businesses in terms of how they navigate COVID and the fallout from it. So Asiona, major international engineering company, uh, and in fact, they've been one of the fastest growing engineering companies in Western Australia. They've yep. picked up a whole range of big projects. They've become the other go-to for the big big infrastructure projects, haven't they? Absolutely, yeah. Um, a lot of big state government ones. Um, and one of the contracts they've got is to build this waste-to-energy plant down at Quinana. It's a $700 million project. Um, goes under the name of Avertus Energy, backed by Macquarie Capital. A lot of these plants around the world, this is actually the first one to get underway in Australia. And is this like a build, own, operate, or what's the, do we know the technicalities of that? Um, Avertus is part of the consortium for the, the build phase, um, and then Macquarie's brought in another partner for the operation of it. Okay. Um, essentially, they're going to take waste from a whole bunch of councils around Perth, yep. um, burn it, um, and produce energy from it. Um, and and, and it would be owned by a Macquarie Fund, would it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. Um, as well as some other institutional investors that have come in. Got it. But look, major three-year construction project um, was due to be finished last year. Yeah. Uh, but uh, judging by the most recent um, images we've seen of it, it's still surrounded by scaffolding, clearly not finished. The parties have ended up in court, and Asiona is claiming that because of COVID restrictions and border restrictions in Western Australia, yep. they can't get in the key people that they need to complete the project, and they want the courts to declare force majeure, meaning they're no longer responsible yep. because of these unforeseen circumstances. Now, force majeure is something that we normally think of as a, a natural disaster, you yep. know, a flood or a fire or a cyclone or something. But it could be extended but to war or things like that, of Or course. war, yes. Yep. Um, or and governments changing policy yeah, on you. That's right, border lockdowns. Yes. Um, now, there was a... This actually commenced interstate late last year, but Jacinda Burton picked up on the story and, in fact, broke the story because there was a court hearing in the WA Supreme Court. Right. All the parties coming together trying to work out how they resolve the dispute. Presumably with WA-based lawyers representing Asiona. <laughs> we would imagine, Yes. Um, now, there was some preliminary discussion because lawyers for uh, the Macquarie Consortium, their comments to the judge were along the lines that, look, there's additional paperwork that's required to bring people into WA. There's a few hoops to jump through, um, but that it's manageable. Whereas Asiona is saying, well, actually, it's a lot more than that. Mm. You know, we just couldn't get key people that we needed. Yeah. So it's going to be really fascinating to hear these arguments articulated in detail, and it'll go to an issue that's frustrated many people in Perth 
about the lack of transparency as to who was able to get into the state or not. Yeah. You know, we've all known of people that have managed to come into the state who have managed to jump through those hoops. Yes. But equally, I've spoken to other organisations that just hit a brick wall when they tried to bring people into the state. And then that's business and and the like. Then there's the private side where, you know, lots of private people, individuals, had all sorts of problems as well. Yeah. Now, let's just be clear. So this, this, uh, this legal battle precedes the the delaying of the border opening. So it's nothing to do with the fact that it didn't open at the beginning of this month. This is all about what happened last year in getting skilled people or con- construction. Maybe they would have even flown construction workers in under normal times in uh, given there's been a shortage of people in the last year or so. Would that be correct? And I think also this would be one of those cases where there's there's key people with engineering skills in a highly specialised field that could add a lot of value to a project of this kind. Mm. And that's where you know an international organisation like ASEONA can add value. So that's their advantage, of course. They've got these rare individuals who know exactly something and you're doing enough of these waste-to-energy plants around the world that you can ship that kind of expertise around. You can have it in-house rather than one-off project. Is that that's what right. you kind of yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. Now, just to make it more interesting, one of the other projects that SEONA is working on is, in fact, a second waste-to-energy plant uh, located very close by at East Rockingham. Yeah. Um, this is something that we've discussed in the past. It's almost a, a, almost a perverse scenario that Western Australia has two waste-to-energy plants under development mm. before anybody else in the market. Uh, in fact, I saw during the week CleanAway, you know, they're a huge player, they're talking about developing similar plants on the East Coast. Yep. Um, but we've got two underway. They're just a couple of kilometres from each other. And Asiona is the lead contractor on both of them. Yeah, right. Um, and so they haven't had any dramas well, with the other one that we're aware of. We're yet to hear. Um, mm. we've, we've been chasing up you know, insights on what's happening there. Who owns the... Who's, who's the ownership of the East Rockingham facility? Once again, it's it's some international investment groups. Right. Um, there were some local partners that have been bought out, but it's basically it's international investors who see this as a an attractive asset class. Yep. It's almost like an infrastructure plus asset class. Yeah. Um, and international parties that have got experience doing this in other parts of the world. Mm. Um, so look, so there's that other waste to energy project, but also things like the Bunbury Outer Ring Road. You know, that's the largest regional road project ever undertaken in WA. Asiona won that one. Uh, the upgrade out at Bayswater train station, uh, freight facility in Kenwick, whole range of projects that they're working on. Yeah. No. Okay. All right. And so we'll it'd be interesting to see how uh, this might be their test case, and then there may be some application of that that precedent in in other uh, projects they're working on. You never know. All right. Now, continuing on with uh, kind of that COVID theme. Um, it's getting messier for the government by the day as the state's borders remain shut, but the virus has taken off anyway. Yeah, look, it's we're at a really fascinating point here where it's clearly Omicron is starting to spread through the community. Um, but as we've seen around the country and indeed around the world, it's a debate around balancing the health issues and the commercial issues and indeed the personal issues from people who are subject to restrictions. And I'd argue that's always been the case. It's just it, there's a lot more balance in that argument now because 
Omicron's not as uh, deadly by the looks of things. Well, look, uh, in fact, you pointed out to me earlier a stat that I hadn't actually seen publicised anywhere, that while we've now got what total number of active cases in WA is about 570, yeah. and, and it's growing rapidly, but off a very, very, very low base. Sure, but it, it'll double every couple of days at the, at the rate it's um, going. Number of people in hospital with COVID? Donut. Zero. <laughs> That's right. So, now look, clearly that will change. Yeah. Uh, based on experience elsewhere, as the number of cases here goes up, number of people in hospital will go up. Uh, but vaccination rates in Western Australia, here's another number I hadn't realised that it got quite so high. Number of people in WA aged 12 and over with their first dose, 98.6%. Yeah, right. There you uh, go. Now... It puts into context some of the people holding placards outside of various government institutions at the moment. That's right. <laughs> now, I'm sure the 98.6% includes quite a few people that probably didn't want to get vaccinated. Sure. But because of the, the rules that prevail, they felt obliged to do so. But from a health outcome, that's a great result. And 95% double vaxxed. You know, these are numbers way above just about any other jurisdiction around the world. Yeah, and I so, mean, I must admit, I'm on the record here in this podcast saying I didn't believe we'd ever get to 90%. I thought that was just a dream. So, uh, you know, it has proved possible. So it gives us a lot of confidence about our capacity to manage the health fallout. And indeed, the other one is third vax, 54% and growing. And, you know, and if you want to get your third vax, you've had plenty of chances. Yeah. Well, I think the, the argument's still going on at the moment, isn't it? That, you know, those of us that are that have had a third vax, at some point it starts to wear off. So you, you kind of actually need you need the virus to take to take off to a degree at a time when you've got that maximum impact from vaccination. So the Premier came out during the week and said that he would uh, release details about the reopening plan for WA sometime this month. Right. So we're not quite sure when that's going to happen. Of course, the Premier himself will be travelling interstate, I think, next week to testify in the legal action against Clive Palmer. So, so um, it might be convenient for him to open up prior to his return. Um, and Mark, look, is, is it fair to say the, the AMA have actually come out and said the borders should be opened? Uh, yes, they're pushing hard um, in that regard. Um, and look, more broadly... Uh, a lot of people are saying early March. Yeah. Um, because if you go beyond that, you know, there's, you start running into other issues. The third third dose wears off. You start potentially getting into the flu season in winter. Um, and why wait any longer? Yep. Um, Omicron is already spreading in the community. So yep. that, you know, the big decision might not actually be so momentous after all because the spread will happen anyway. Yes. In the meantime, business is battling with the current restrictions. Uh, here we are, we're in the office in the, on St George's Terrace, um, yeah, it's but it's very, pretty quiet. It's very quiet. I mean, I'm only you know occasionally coming into the city now, but I was very surprised at how quiet it is. Uh, so it doesn't really matter if you speak to retail retailers in the city or in suburbia, it is very quiet. Uh, you know, I've had one retailer say to me, oh, people are scared. Now, I don't I don't really buy that argument. Scared, I think, is the wrong word. I think people are just, they're being cautious or they're being, you know, kind of, why go with the aggravation of wearing masks and all the drama, which, you know, really is not really pleasant. Why go to the shops if you don't have to, I think is really, it's not a, 
you know, personally, I've never found shopping as a, a way of entertaining myself, but for a lot of other people, it is. Uh, a part, it's a pastime, and I think those people are opting not to. Um, so we are seeing that soft, soft retail uh, situation. Um, and, you know, that's just bad news. But my view is that isn't anything to do with the borders, right? That would be there anyway. So I think we've got two different things going on here at the moment. You've got business being affected because they can't get skills in. And then you've got business being affected by the fact that even though we haven't got COVID rampant in the community, people are acting as if it is. Well, look, we've had a lot of reports from people, particularly in hospitality, talking about the impact on their turnover, you know, a big fall. Yep. And we had some new data out from Crown Resorts. Now, they put out their half-year results during the week. Uh, within that, uh, Crown Perth, over the half-year to December, was actually the, the relatively bright spot for Crown. Yes. Because you know, most of Sydney and Melbourne have been shut down for large periods during the half-year. But what I found even more interesting was the trend in their activity in WA since February 4, because that's when people were required to show proof of vaccination right. to gain entry to many places, including the gaming floor at Crown. They're saying that for the six weeks of this calendar year, activity is down 23% right. compared to what it was in the prior half year. Got it. So that to me is sort of a, a hard measure of just how much impact the restrictions are having on the behaviour of the punters and then discouraging them from going out. Yep. Interesting yeah. because uh, I was there uh, post an event not that long ago, uh, like within the last week or so, and the queue for that sort of Friday check-in with people going there for a weekend at Crown, you know, a, a holiday at home, staycation, whatever it is, was huge. And I've noticed that a couple of times that I've been in there and that kind of thing. So, uh, and in fact, I was speaking to someone in uh, in a kind of retail environment and they were talking about how they just had three days off to go and stay at Crown. <laughs> uh, so obviously I think people are still taking advantage from what I can see anecdotally of the option of staying there, but maybe the people who are just going out and going to the casino, that whole, oh, can we really be bothered? And I think that's the problem. Can we really be bothered with all that stuff? Um, and Mark, I'm just wondering, is that can't be bothered or is that I object to being told to have to show some certification everywhere I go? Yeah, look, bound to be a bit of both. Yep. Um, certainly there's that you know, people's, uh, is it their pride? They don't like being told what to do. No. Um, my personal experience, um, I've been going out a lot. It's To me, it's no hassle. Yep. Wearing a mask is a slight annoyance. Yeah. Um, well, you just... don't need to as soon as you've got a drink in your hand anyway, right? Well, that's right, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and Mark, also, I think we, we discussed Fringe, uh, you know, like you and I have both been to Fringe or festival shows, that whilst they're out, they're still foolish, there's definitely not as many people around for those events. Yeah, look, Fringe Festival is definitely quieter this year than it has been in prior years. Um, I've already been to a couple of Perth Festival shows They've been had good numbers, but I suspect you know, that was people that had already bought their tickets some time ago yep. and committed to going out to a show. Um, but more generally, once you walk out of the theatre, there's not so many people on the street. Yeah, got it. And it might be people like us who are repurposing because we bought tickets to uh, 
concert that was meant to be on, that's not on. So now we're <laughs> finding other things to do on that night. Yeah. Okay. Um, and look, the other area here that has been affected a lot is international students. Um, now, I think there's recognition by the government about the impact that all the restrictions are having. Um, so, for instance, you know, with their quarantine requirements, they've softened them a bit. Um, so without the big opening up, they are doing a number of smaller steps. And in regard to international students, they've had a number of policy changes in just a matter of weeks regarding rules surrounding them. But they came out during the week and have basically have, have softened the requirements substantially. Got it. Um, which they're saying is due to their latest health assessment. Um, but perhaps it's also a recognition that WA was just losing international students. And I'm told many that had enrolled in Western Australia have in the last few weeks shifted to campuses on the East Coast yep. that no, are more accommodating. It's an ugly, ugly uh, situation. And I, I have heard, and I can't recall now where I heard this, whether it was actually on radio or whether it was in a conversation, you know, about people who've, you know, literally sold their house, moving their whole family here, and now they're just in limbo because they can't get in. Um, uh, and I've heard, you know, very, you know, like, lots and the universities have to deal with this and they've got no control over it um uh i must admit i was out at curtain during the week and actually uh at the hockey stadium there and i was actually surprised someone came a guy came up to me and introduced himself as a student from india and he was uh wondering where he could play hockey so obviously i gave him some assistance on that front but i kind of went well how long have you been here he had just come out of quarantine the day prior and was, you know, enjoying his first days of freedom in Perth. So uh, they are coming out, they are happening. Well, the government put out some numbers on that. So they said about 900 international students have already entered or re-entered WA since January, but they're saying there's another 6,000 that they're wanting to secure. Yep. Um, so look, another example where the government's being a bit more flexible, um, but we urge them to keep on going down that path to make life easier. And, and Mark, a final comment on all this. Um, I was at a kind of a, an open discussion forum yesterday evening. I won't go into the detail, but people were asking some sort of political type questions. And um, one of them was, uh, what, what about the brand damage that's been done to WA? Uh, and I think I've heard that more and more now that people feel that WA had kind of you know, we'd had we'd had to wear the fact that everyone thought we were being a bit ridiculous over here, but in many cases, people had felt that actually it had worked out well. But I get a strong feeling that this last few weeks, or where we've basically reneged on a, the border restrictions, has been pretty costly in terms of brand damage. Uh, you know, the 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 very famous lamb ad. You know, it's not kind of the. Uh, the gridiron world series advertising but it kind of almost is for 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 from an australian perspective the the big lamb ad for australia day lots of political statements in that and at the end it's got mark mcgowan looking at a map of you know basically the world which just is wa uh and i think that flavor people are now starting to feel they're getting you know people the rest of the start, countries opened up there's no real reason to be closed up. Even the AMA is saying we shouldn't. I get a feeling that this there's just been a mistake made here and it's starting to hurt. So that brand damage is starting to impact uh, and people are starting to talk about it a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm hearing the same thing. Um, and so when the tourism campaigns start rolling out again, 
yeah. be up against it. So they'll have to, yeah, they'll have to work extra hard just to get back to, you know, ground zero. Um, all right, well, a big change of subject, Mark, uh, and this has got a bit of a historic bend to it, so I really like this one. Commonwealth Bank will take over all the business banking of its subsidiary, Bankwest. Now, I suspect there are a lot of punters out there that do not even realise that Bankwest is owned by the Commonwealth Bank. Mm. Has been the, since late 2008. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Bankwest announced during the week that their entire business banking operation will be shifted to the parent company, Commonwealth Bank. So customers will be shifted over to ComBank products and all the staff will gradually move over to ComBank as well. Yeah. So a really significant strategic shift. Uh, we often talk about the big four banks, but in WA we had the big five and Bank West was the fifth competitor. Yeah. Um, but it was privatised back in 1995. Yeah. Uh, remained independent for a number of years under international ownership. Um, but then in 2008, in the midst of the GFC, when it's at that point it was owned by Lloyds Bank in the UK. And Lloyd's got them, themselves into some financial strife. Put and I think just for the punters listening, we all remember that it was owned, uh, uh, controlled by HBOS. Yep. But in fact, HBOS was controlled by Lloyd's, right? Just That's to, right. Just to make okay. that clear. Okay, yep. yep. Um, Commonwealth Bank seized the opportunity and bought Bank West in 2008. And since then, it's gone from being an independent sort of entity in its own right with its own board of directors to being an operating division of the Commonwealth Bank. Yeah. So I guess it's, its autonomy bit by bit over the years has been eroded. Yeah. Um, and then the fact that they're now giving up business banking is another really major shift and a significant loss of competition in the local market. Now, this will affect about 350 people. Now, on our database of business banking people in Western Australia, that makes Bank West the largest business bank in the state. Yeah. Um, ahead of Westpac, Combank and the others. Uh, so, you know, there will be less competition in the market. The future then for Bank West, that's seen as a, a national retail brand. Now, overwhelmingly their business is still in WA, but it's seen as sort of a, an alternative brand, particularly for online banking um, at a national level. Yep. And they're talking about doing a big investment in technology and systems and no doubts and some new savvy online products to try and tap into that opportunity. Um, so hopefully you know, there's some success in that regard and that the Bank West you know, continues to have a positive future. Uh, but it's a, it's a shame though to see a big chunk of its operations uh, being folded into its parent company. Yeah, and that's the nature of you know this of the of the arrangement back in 2008 that was always going to happen um you know in the end there's a there's there's a cost to running you know subsidiaries with different brands and potentially different technology and different products so you know from a commonwealth bank point of view i fully understand what they're doing uh, and in fact uh you know it was some years ago that they actually uh they actually um put all the big clients went to Commonwealth Bank anyway. So the, 
the Bankwest business banking clientele was always sub a certain level, and I can't remember what that was. It was 10 million or 20 million, some number where you know if you were banking more than that, you went you went to Commonwealth anyway. Um, but you know this is that nature of things, isn't it, Mark? Where you know it's a slow chipping away. This bank was privatised, and I, you know, quite rightly privatised, with a whole lot of rules around it to make sure that it could be WA based and it would do all these things. And you and I can probably debate whether having a bank based here is important or not. But I think a lot of people would argue it is. Um, and over time, that's chipped away, and it's chipped away because, in this case. There's some advantages, you know, from the from from Commonwealth Bank, and you know, Commonwealth Bank are definitely the technology leader in banking in Australia. So, you know, perhaps it's better for clients. But that came from a decision years ago to allow a foreign company to control it, uh, and that foreign company got in trouble. And then, you know, there was a lot of panic. You might remember that period, if I remember, October 2008. There was a lot of panic around about bank failure, the possibility of it. And so the regulators and the government just allowed Bankwest to be sold relatively cheaply. I think it was $2 billion or yep. some number like that, you know, to Commonwealth Bank to let, you know, for one reason or another, the shareholders of Commonwealth Bank deal with the problem of potential bank failure rather than the thing being left on its own and potentially failing and then the government having egg on its face. Um, now, you know, I'm I guess the government can't have it both ways. You can't allow something to be sold and then uh, and and then say, oh, but you need to have a bank here in WA. If you really need to have a bank here in WA, then the government, the state government, should have probably have supported it at the time. Anyway, uh, in that regard, you know, I mean, state governments have introduced legislation to protect and maintain Bank West as a Perth headquartered institution. Sure. Uh, there was legislation in '95 when it was privatised, and then there was more legislation that went in in 2012 when there was a change in the in the structure of yep. Bank West. And at that time, Colin Barnett was Premier and Treasurer, and he said the aim of the legislation was to maintain the type and scale of banking business that prevailed at that point in time. Now, so clearly, that is not continuing to be the case. Well, okay, so the type of business definitely changes if you're not doing business banking, but maybe the scale has. Maybe their mortgage book has grown by X, and, you know, if you didn't put a CPI on that and blah, 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 then, you know, there's all sorts of ways of getting around that, I suspect. Um, and, Mark, look, I'm going to make a prediction here anyway. You know, what is it? This is a four-year transition or something. Sometime soonish after four years, I imagine, four to five years, maybe six, Bankwest will be back in the business banking market because... You know, just too many SMEs who, where the individuals, their mortgage and their private banking is tied up with their business, and they will be drawn to other banks if they can't get that kind of packaging from Bankwest. I suspect. I mean, I could be wrong, but you know, you and I both watched um, businesses go in and out of markets, and you know, they come and they go, and. Sometimes it's management fashion and other times it's strategic change, but I just suspect they'll be back. Well, we've certainly seen many examples of big companies that uh, at a point in time, they're saying, we're going to focus on our core. And then uh, two or three years later, we need to diversify. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> These things swing around. Yeah. All right. Sorry, we 
that, that was a long discussion, but I, I've always in, enjoyed talking about those ones that have got a bit of a historic bent. Now, uh, there's been a bunch of half-yearly reports that are quite illuminating when it comes to the impact of commodity prices and poor retail trading. Certainly you do. Uh, so West Farmers put out their half-year results. Uh, they were an example of a company that disappointed the market. They had a 14% fall in profit, and that was really driven by their Kmart and Officeworks businesses. Uh, they both had a very substantial decline in both um, in revenue and earnings in particular. And of course, that's national, and that would be COVID-related. COVID nationally. shutdowns, yeah, yes. Yeah. Especially around Christmas, I imagine. Though, despite the shutdowns, uh, Bunnings, which is sort of the biggest part of West Farmers' operations, uh, their revenue was actually up slightly. Um, earnings were down a little bit, um, but they weren't affected dramatically. Um, and then their, their chemicals and energy business, that did very well. But yeah, the big theme there was the impact on their retail operations. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, as, as the East Coast comes out of that, and we maybe slide into that, as we've just discussed, maybe, I mean, obviously... Bunnings is national as well, so we only represent 10 or so percent of that, I imagine, but it'd be interesting to see the effect yeah. in, this, in, the, in the full year. On the positive side, uh, Woodside produced a very strong uh, profit result, more than double the previous year at about US $2 billion, uh, driven fundamentally by high commodity prices. Um, oil and gas prices have risen very substantially over yep. the six-month period and uh, Woodside benefited substantially from it. Um, their produc production actually was down a little bit, um, so it was all about the prices. Uh, and you know, that'll be very pleasing for Meg O'Neill, uh, recently installed chief executive, um, in the process of finalising the merger with BHP's petroleum business, plus they've done the final investment decision on their Scarborough gas project, um, so very encouraging for Meg O'Neill, mm. uh, where she talks about you know, some really momentous decisions that have set up Woodside for the future. And question without notice, what's the oil price movement roughly in that time, do you know? Is it, is it doubled or anything dumb like that? Um, I can tell you the price for LNG. Yes, uh, That okay. was in Matt McKenzie's article. Uh, that went from just about doubled from yeah. US $32 per barrel of oil equivalent to... Sixty dollars. Yeah. Okay. So that might give you a guide as to yeah. oil prices. And they well. linked to the oil price anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess we're seeing the prices going up at the Bowser, and I'm always curious as to exactly how much that is linked to the overall price because they're getting up pretty high at the moment. Uh, I think we're starting to see prices that we probably never thought we'd see around two dollar mark. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, iron ore. Uh, both BHP and Fortescue Metals Group put yep. out their results. Uh, BHP, strong growth in profit. Uh, they declared a record dividend. Mm. Um, and the the, dri the fundamental driver for BHP, as it's been for quite some time, is their Pilbara iron ore operations. Uh, it's interesting to compare the different iron ore producers because you know we've discussed movements in the benchmark price quite a lot. Um, it sort of fell away rapidly late last year, but it's recovered to pretty healthy levels, around about 140 US dollars a ton. Yep. But the key factor for the different producers is the quality of their ore. Mm -hmm. BHP and Rio tend to have higher quality ore, so the price at which they sell is much closer to that benchmark. Yep. FMG, their ore is not so good, 
So they've got a bigger discount, and that was reflected in the profit results. Yes. BHP did well. Fortescue had a fairly significant fall, a 32% decline in net profit. And a reduction in dividend. And That's right. And um, that followed on from MinRes that we talked about previous week in, which, in the same boat. Yeah, mineral resources, I think, was affected even more so yeah. because their, their quality, their ore quality is the next level down again. And the discussion that I've had around this is um, it's not just the discount. Well, uh, in the end, the margin that the iron ore producers get is also eroded by, has been eroded by an increase in shipping costs, which has been up, now I'm trying to remember, like 50% or higher, quite a lot per tonne. Uh, I think it went from as little as $10 a tonne to up to $25 a tonne kind of thing, you know. So if you're getting a discount already on what on your, on your uh, ore and then you've got to pay more for the shipping, and if you're a buyer, it becomes also cheaper or more reasonable to pay a premium because why pay extra shipping as well? So I think they've got in a, you know, that's been a very difficult time for them. And, of course, the flip side of high oil and gas prices benefiting Woodside... Yes. It's a higher input cost for Transport, miners. Yes. So and diesel in particular, you know, diesel is a big input um, that's gone up. So most of the iron ore miners, their sort of cost of production was up around 18, 20 percent yeah, over okay. the half year. Um, Sorry, that was an increase of 18 or 20 percent, or that was the actual cost of production. Cost of production went up between 18 yes, and 20 percent. Okay. Got it. Um, some interesting commentary from Mike Henry at BHP. One. I was really intrigued by the very modest language that he used. He talked about a, a solid operating performance, um, reliable operating performance. So very modest mm. in terms of how he's characterised it when you look at a what is a great profit result. The other thing too, he talked about the outlook for inflation, which we've discussed previously globally, and how that's probably going to flow through to stock markets and to higher interest rates. From Mike Henry's perspective and BHP's perspective, they're saying, well, look, that's fundamentally positive for the resources industry because it will probably prolong this period of higher commodity prices. Yeah. And if you're an efficient operator like BHP, at the low end of the cost curve, you're poised to benefit. Got it. So they see a very positive outlook. Mm. No, fair enough. And, you know, it's always hard. To, you've got to be cautious about predictions, but... Uh, you know, it's certainly been a good year in that sense. Right. Um, Mark, finally, uh, news that Synergy has sold its historic South Fremantle power station to an undisclosed buyer has highlighted a bit of lack of detail in some of the state government's recent deals. Well, look, this is a perennial issue about how much disclosure government agencies should make on their commercial dealings. Um, June last year, Synergy and Synergy said it would run an expression of interest process to sell um, its disused uh, South Fremantle power station. It's right there on the coast, yes. prime location. The expression of interest process, very strangely, only ran for eight days. Hmm. They said they were going to announce the outcome in September. That didn't happen last year, but we've now learned. Matt McKenzie broke this story, that they've entered a conditional agreement with an unnamed party with respect to the sale of the power station. But they won't tell us how many people 
were involved in the expression of interest process, even though Energy Minister Bill Johnson last year tweeted a news article which said there'd been 12 applicants. Mm. Um, but nor will they tell us who they were in discussions with. And look, it can be frustrating where there's a commercial confidentiality aspect to this, um, but there's also a requirement for some transparency to ensure that a good deal is being done for taxpayers and that the process... Oppositions tell us that all the time, don't they? Well, Mark McGowan was very strong on it when he was in opposition. Okay, there you uh, go. He talked about... He, he sort of criticised his predecessors and said he'd be better. Mm. Well, I think once in government, people... you know. They change. They change. Well, they realise the benefit of, you know, having keeping information to themselves, right? The benefit of it and, and how life gets more complicated when you're in government. Yes. Um, but now we've got David Honey, Liberal leader, who's come out very strongly and said he's disappointed by the lack of disclosure here. Yeah. And look, this is just one example. You know, the other one, it was, what, a couple of years ago when the government announced that they'd struck an agreement with both um, Andrew Forrest's company, Tatarang, and Kerry Stokes' company, Australian Capital Equity, uh, with respect to the East Perth power station yes. site. Um, and as part of that agreement, uh, Western Power was going to decommission one of the substations. Um, but we've, we've never seen any detail on that. Now, they haven't finalised an agreement, mm. um, but we still don't know the nature of that agreement. Um, another one we're chasing up the government is quietly working away on privatisation of TAB. Um, Labor government doesn't like to shout from the rooftops when they're privatising things, but they're still <laughs> happening. Uh, but once again, not disclosing details about you know what's happening in that process there. Got it. All right, Mark. Oh, well, food for thought. Thank you. Uh, on March 8, join us to mark International Women's Day with a special event at the Convention Centre. High-profile corporate player Diane Smith-Gander will be a guest speaker, preceding a strong panel of prominent WA political and business leaders, including Mia Davies, Rebecca Tompkinson, Richard Cohen and Peter Bennett. For more detail, go to our website. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.